So I'd like to welcome Hilaria Cruz. Just to start, I'll read your bio, Hilaria, so everyone can get a sense of who you are. Dr. Hilaria Cruz is an assistant professor in the Comparative Humanities Department at the University of Louisville. She is a native speaker of Chitino, an endangered Zapotecan language spoken in the mountains of Oaxaca, Mexico, and by Chitino who have migrated to the southeastern United States including Durham, North Carolina, Atlanta, Georgia, and Huntsville, Alabama. She has collected and archived more than 100 hours of audio recordings of naturalistic speech in formal and informal settings. She is currently researching the Chitino concepts of the dead in four eastern Chitino communities, and Hilaria and her sister, Emiliana Cruz, created an orthography for the Chitino language, and in 2018 created a monolingual children's book series to be used as language teaching materials. So welcome, Hilaria. Thank you so much for participating today. I really appreciate it. Uh, To start, can you share a bit about how you became a linguist? Yes, I would like to say uh, thank you to everyone in Chitino. Uh, thank you very much for uh, coming today for this, this conversation. So, uh, so the question was, how did I get into linguistics? I was born and lived in my native community in the mountains of Oaxaca, Mexico. I did not speak Spanish until I was eight years old when I was uh, thrown into the classroom where I was forced to learn the Spanish language. And um, so I, I continue, you know, like being immersed in this uh, uh, school, you know, I, because uh, this was uh, part of the, the Mexican national policy to, to do away with indigenous languages. They completely discounted indigenous languages, but also discounted completely the research on these languages. So their main, the main goal was to integrate indigenous people into the, into the Spanish language, into the national culture of what is Mexico. So I continue uh, my schooling for good or bad. You know, I, I, I learned Spanish. And then, you know, we were living in this uh, district a capital in this town. This was like a frontier town. And uh, there was a lot of racism towards the Chatino people who lived in the surrounding areas. So, um, so I, you know, we asked my father that we were not comfortable living in this place because there was a lot of um, prejudice against us and against other Chatinos who were living there. So then we, my family moved to the district capital that is the Oaxaca city. So, you know, we continue with our school, schooling. And then, you know, like, uh, 
you know, I was in high school and then I, I went to college and then I continued to, you know, like, um, I, I began to ask myself, well, you know, it would be wonderful to be able to, to learn how to, you know, write the Chatino language, you know, although, you know, like I was always afraid to reveal that I was a, an indigenous person, but, you know, at home, uh, our, my father and mother encouraged, you know, we spoke the Chatino language. So then, um, so I began to to ask myself, it'll be really beautiful to be able to uh, to write in the in the Chatino language because now I know how to read uh, how to read and write in the Spanish language. But then we tried, we tried, and uh, it, it was not possible because it is you know the Chatino language is um, it's a highly tonal language. We have ten basic tones, but we also have sandy tone, and we have other you know uh, uh, tonal features features in the language. I would try to write in the language, but I was not able to do it. Somehow, you know, like I will get lost in this, you know, like I will write a few things, but then, you know, I, you know, I could not read whatever I wrote. And um, so one of the problems why, you know, um, why I, I was having an issue writing was because at the time there was no research on tonal languages. I did not know that I spoke a tonal language, but also because the Chatino language has a lot of segmental features that, you know, they are different than the Spanish. And let's say like we have uh, glottostops, we have lots of, you know, laminal sounds, we have uh, many other features that the Chatino, uh, that the, the Spanish language does not have. And if, you know, like, and if you don't have the, the resources to be able to represent those sounds, then you're not going to be able to read the language. There were some proposals in there, but, you know, like, uh, they were really heavily based on the Spanish alphabet. So it happens that when you are a lay speaker of a language and if someone presents you with a writing system that is not, a, you know, that doesn't accord with the phonemic system that you have in your brain, then you're not going accepted. So so then I came to the United States in 1991. So then I began to hear that there were linguists who were working with uh, with native uh, people trying to uh, recuperate uh, their languages. And then I began to think, wow, it would be wonderful if I could help, you know, if I could get some help from a linguist so that I can, you know, get a writing system for my language. And uh, so one day I went to um, to this interpretation course. And at the end of the course, the instructor handed us like a huge, you know, book with legal terms. And all of us who were taking the, the course were from Oaxaca, Mexico. We spoke, you know, like uh, different languages. And she just handed us the book and then... And then she says, well, translate these legal terms in, in your language. And no one in the room knew how, you know, knew how to, to write, you know, and read in their languages. And after that, and I said, well, I had enough of this. So then I began to write to all of these different linguists, begging them, please help me write my language. So then I, um, uh, this is how, you know, uh, George Scherzer and, um, uh, Nora England and Tony Woodbury from the University of Texas answer our call. You know, my sister began to, uh, my sister Emiliana Cruz, uh, she, um, began to, uh, she joined the graduate program in, in anthropology at the University of Texas. And I joined the linguistics uh, program a year later. And, uh, that is how we began in earnest to study the, you know, 
the, the phonemic system, the tonal system of the Chatino language. And then in, uh, in conjunction to that, we began to do field work in all of these different uh, Chatino communities, gathering a corpus, but also talking with communities and informing, you know, the communities that we were, you know, gathering data so that we could uh, devise a writing system. So, so that is how, you know, the, our efforts began. Wow. Yeah. So it was like a whole, a whole journey from like becoming frustrated in school all the way up to until you became a linguist. Can you give some context for people who aren't familiar with Chitino a bit about like the language context? Where is it spoken? Like, where is the community or the community's base a bit about that and its uh, vitality? Yes, the Chatino communities uh, uh, are located very close to the Pacific coast, um, the southern state of Oaxaca, Mexico. And uh, we, are, we are about uh, 40 miles from the coast. And uh, there are three Chatino languages, Sensontepec Chatino, which is spoken in about uh, 15 communities. And Sensontepec Chatino, the, the, it's... Uh, it's spoken in these 10 to 15 communities and it's very uniform. You know, people, you know, these languages are intelligible. Uh, the other Chatino language is Atatartepec Chatino, which is spoken only in one community, Atatartepec de Valdez. And the other group is the Eastern Chatino languages, which, which is spoken by about 16 communities. And this uh, group of Eastern Chatino languages, intelligibility is a little bit difficult because each town has their own tonal register. And by that, I mean, like, for example, I am a small person and with my build, let's say that the low tone um, for me is a hundred and um, 110 hertz. Like for example, the word kla is uh, 110 hertz. And uh, the same word for a speaker of Panixlahuaca Chatino, let's say with my sound build will be um, 120 hertz throughout. So that, you know, so we recognize uh, which community a person comes from if we were at the market and we hear them. So um, each town has their own, you know, like tone, set of tone registers. So, and that also, you know, tone in the Chatino language is, uh, is what marks the morphology. So that means that like, for example, if I were conjugating a verb, like for example, if uh, the completed form will be I ate and then the potential will be so then uh, for another community this will be maybe the completed which is for me will be like or something like that is different so so if you are not engaging with you know like let's say like me my example right now i'm not in the community so if i'm not engaging with people from different communities on an everyday basis if i try to speak with them is difficult so intelligibility is difficult mm -hmm. you know given you know like given all of these uh, differences in pitches that mark the grammar of the language so now you also ask about the vitality of the language it's um it's it changes like for example if we are talking about the eastern chatino languages 
Uh, there are some uh, communities where the language is stronger and where and, and in other communities where the language is highly endangered. Like for example, in my community, the language is still you know learned by by children and, and the language is used and um, you know for businesses like the, it's used by the authorities, it's used for, by people at home, it's used in uh, the loudspeaker when people make announcements when they're selling something or when they're calling someone. But you know, of course, in school they don't use mm-hmm. it. And uh, in Zacatepec is another is a different case. In Zacatepec, the Chatino language is not longer learned by children. It is only spoken by elders 50 or 60 years and older and announcements and the loudspeakers are made in Spanish. Mm. So it changes from town to town. Okay. Wow. Okay. So it's quite, it's quite different. Is there any kind of official recognition or official policy that supports Chitino languages or is it completely unrecognized? In 2003, the Mexican government created uh, INALI, and I believe uh, in the Constitution they they recognize uh, indigenous languages right now. But given that neglect Mm -hmm. of the Mexican government, uh, we are Mm -hmm. behind. We don't have a lot of, you know, research in these languages. Many of these communities uh, still, like even the Chatino languages, even though we have done work on the Chatino languages for the last 17 years, there are many Chatino languages that still need basic studies at the segmental, you know, level. Uh, They still need, you know, um, people to, you know, to record and to develop a, a writing system in school, as I was saying, um, the language is still, you know, the of the language of instruction continues to be Spanish. And Chatino, yes, it is taught in some bilingual schools, but it's only taught like, you know, one or two hours per week. So how much can you learn from mm-hmm. that? So it is very uneven, but still the public policy, it still uh, uses uh, Spanish as a language of instruction. Mm-hmm. I see. Can you speak a bit to the challenges or challenges or advantages you've experienced as an insider linguist? And somebody also asked if working as an insider researcher causes the community's perception of you to shift. Well, I have, you know, I I continue to uh, to maintain strong ties with people in my community, and right now we uh, we're working with uh, with people. But still, I mean, of course, you know. Um, uh, I'm an, an insider in a certain sense, but an outsider in another sense, mm-hmm. you know, like it is not like, you know, uh, it is not uniform. Like, for example, when I was uh, doing research in my community, oftentimes I felt, you know, really lonely because when uh, we began doing this, this work, people uh, did not understand why is it that we were recording people. You know, like, uh, for example, you know, we will come to the community with our advisors and sometimes we'll say, well, you know, you're selling the language to outsiders or or like, for example, of course, there are advantages of uh, being an, uh, a member of the community when one is working with um uh, you know, eliciting um, language and stories, you know, of course, you know, like given my family connections, I have been able to record ceremonies, you know, like ceremonies in City Hall, uh, where, you know, like uh, the ceremonies, you know, uh, that ha- I have recorded, you know, those are, you know, highly, you know, value 
uh, ritual language such as such as prayers and um, prayers that happen in city hall and uh, sacred places. Also, in in contexts where you know, with the language and the ceremonies are done by you know are spoken by men. Like for example, I have had them happen to record ceremonies in city hall which is you know a register of men only i've been the only woman in a room of 60 men being the only woman that has you know that is recording but and and the reason why i have access to those kind of um uh, places is because my father you know was a highly respected you know member of the of the community but also because you know you know, I'm able to speak Chatino with them and, you know, explain to them what is the reason of, of why I'm doing this. So I have been able to, to record really interesting uh, language in, in, in the community. And, but also there are other dynamics that come into play when a person is from the community. Like, for example, the Chatino communities, um, has been, um, they have, ha- there has been a lot of, um, you know, violence, you know, sometimes, you know, animosity between different, you know, members of, you know, communities, animosity with, between different, you know, families sometimes, you know, like, Oftentimes, you know, like, uh, ex-family might, you know, might have had, you know, killed, you know, uh, a member of white family and then the member of white family retaliates, uh, against the members of ex-family. So then, you know, like these, these situations touch me on a personal level because, you know, let's say that an uncle of mine was killed by a member of ex-family. Of course, you know, uh, I'm a person and uh, if, the, if that happens, I, I take it. Personally, and and of course, I myself would not go and uh, do recordings and you know mm-hmm. and work with you know members of communities that have you know done harm to people that I love, yeah. or for the same reason, you know those people would not want to talk to me either. Another th- another interesting thing that comes into play also is is that in my community, family is that the unit, you know, that, you know, like, uh, that moves uh, the, the community. Like, for example, I am, uh, I am expected to support my family regardless of what happens. It, regardless, let's say, you know, one day I was, um, you know, at a party, and I guess I was, you know, uh, you know, talking without thinking and then I said oh my uncle you know is sleeping because he's has a hangover one of my cousins was sitting uh, was standing next to me she just came and covered my mouth because you know I was I, I I'm not supposed to talk about members of my family and if and if members of my family have done anything wrong uh, the blame goes towards the entire family. So um, with anything that happens then, so of course, a lot of things are, you know, like move, things move, business are done through through families. And as a member uh, of that community and with family there, so oftentimes I find myself working with other people who are friendly to my family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, wow. That, so you have like a completely other set of dynamics that you have to take into consideration when you're setting up your your research. Going off of that, though, like, what advice would you give to someone who, 
Let's start with insiders. So what advice would you give to another community member who wants to get into linguistics and wants to do research on Chitino or another Zapotecan language? One of the advice that I will give is uh, an advice that I will give with anyone who is working on uh, on indigenous communities. So uh, first of all, you just have to, um, you know, uh, be there. Uh, be humble, be, uh, be present, uh, do not, you know, uh, do not come, you know, with a, with a tape recorder in hand or with, uh, with something, you know, brandishing that you are, you know, going to record people because people get, you know, uh, unis when, when that happens. You have to gain um, uh, people's, you know, uh, trust by just listening, being present, but also being helpful. You know, every time you, um, if you're at someone's, you know, home, offer to help. Like, for example, people are making, you know, just watch how the dynamics are. Like, for example, if uh, somebody's making tortillas, well, try to help them make tortillas. Um, you know, people have, if people have to go fetch water, you know, uh, help them, you know, uh, fetch water, uh, you know. Uh, be also, you know, generous. You know, people like generosity. When you visit someone, don't come empty-handed. Stop by the store and buy, you know, maybe, um, you know, a package of, you know, uh, cookies or something that the, that the members of the family might like. And um, so if, if you are going to do uh, your recording, you have to ask for permission ahead of time, not, not at the, not even, uh, ideally it will be like a day before. Like for example, uh, when I was doing recordings in City Hall, I, um, I asked for permissions from the, from the elders first. So the elders gave me permission. So then I will be recording people in that space, but then there will be elders who uh, were really, really well-spoken that I wanted to work with. So then what I will do is I will ask other members of my community, how can I approach this elder? How, what can I say? You know, of course, people will give me advice as to what to say, how to approach the elders. So then oftentimes I will ask my grandfather, I will ask my mother, do you know this person? Uh, do you know this elder? You know, I would like to record with them. And then uh, what I will usually do, will um, I will have my mom of any member of my family who knew this family, they will come with me, we will go for a visit, just hang out with the family uh, a day before and, you know, explain to them, you know, what is it that I would like to do? Like that happened to me once. Um, I saw this, this elder who was just a really eloquent speaker in, uh, in City Hall. And I asked my mom if uh, she, she knew him. And my mother says, yes, you know, he was a good friend of your father. We do have some relations. So, um, so we went and we just visited. My mother introduced me and introduced the, the work that I do in a, such a wonderful and eloquent way. You know, like um, she told the, the elder that I was recording the language because one day Chatino uh, will be in danger of not spoken anymore. The elder was just like saying, really? And, and my mother says, yes, and this is the reason why Ilaria is uh, doing these recordings and she would like to record with you. So it was just a, a beautiful moment because I, the next day I went, the elder was just waiting for me. He was ready and he 
began to tell me his whole life, you know, I'm going to tell you, because this was in the context of, you know, his uh, service to the community. So, and people serve the community all the way from they are, when they're young until they're old. And uh, so he, he wanted to tell me everything that he knew, you know, he wanted to, you know, impart that information. Now I'm going to tell you about this. Now I'm going to tell you about that. Now I'm going to tell you how to make mezcal. Now I'm going to tell you how we used to deal with people who, you know, like, um, you know, were bad in the community. And it was just a really beautiful conversation. And that elder is not longer, you know, with us. So, so I'm really grateful to have been able to, you know, record, you know, and, uh, and learn from these elders. Yeah. Gosh, that sounds like such a interesting like experience. So that recording of that elder's life history, were you able to save it for his family or archive it for, for the future? Yes, it is archived in the archives of the, at SOAS, but also in the, in, in, at the archive in, of the Latin American languages at the University of Texas. Mm, at yes. Isla. And yeah, at Isla. And of course, you know, like, um, as, as you guys know, you know, it's a, it's a lot of work. And, and of course, as much as I can, I try to make, you know, copies for families. And this is, this is an ongoing task that we have to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So just to flip that question around, um, do you have any advice for outsiders who want to get involved with researching Chitino and anything that like you would advise for them? Yeah, if anyone would like to do um, uh, research in Chatino, talk to me. We're always, you know, uh, welcoming people to do uh, research. And let's see. So um, research for outsiders. I would say if you are interested in working with a community, uh, I would say that uh, you get in touch with people who are doing work in those areas already. Get in touch with them and ask them, you know, what are some of the areas that would be, um, you know, that, that need help? Because, you know, um, oftentimes if you don't uh, ask people, people might, you know, question, you know, why is it that, you know, that that person is doing work and not asking me. But, you know, it's, it's just, you know, common courtesy, you know, to, to ask people who are already doing the work. And it's also really helpful. And then, you know, you ideally also you uh, you talk to people who uh, who speak that language and, Learn the language, you know, that is the language of contact, you know, like in this case in, in Mexico, Spanish helps. And then uh, go to those, uh, go to visit the area with, uh, with no plans to do work. Just, you know, go there, hang out and check what you see and see if this is the, the area that you, you would like to, to work in. And, uh, and hopefully uh, you will go to the community with, uh, with someone who is doing work there or with someone who is a native speaker of the language, you know, and just just going there, hanging out and um, not with no plans to uh, to do recordings uh, is very helpful. Yeah, yeah, that's advice that I would also give. I wasn't able to do it. The first time I was in the field was when I was actually trying to do my project. But if I had had any kind of budget or like anything, I would have gone first just to see like, is this going to work out and introduce myself to people. And I I really think if there's any way you can show up without any recordings to make first, that's really the best way just to get people accustomed to you. And yeah, like you said, you can decide like, is this a good place for me? Yes. 
Um, so we got, we had some questions come in when people registered and then also people are putting questions in the chat. So let's, um, let's, maybe we can do like a, a lightning round of, to try to get to as many questions that people submitted. And then, um, I'll reserve the last 10, 15 minutes for the questions that people are putting in the chat now. Okay. So the first one is, oh, and let's caveat with this is just, you know, Hilaria, you're speaking from your own experience, as am I. Uh, we can't speak for, for everyone. Okay. Um, so one person wrote, if you aren't a native speaker of the language, you're documenting how much time do you need to dedicate to learning the language before starting gathering data? How soon can the real field work begin if you aren't familiar with the language? I feel like this is so different for different languages, but Hilaria, what, what do you think? Oh my God. Well, it's, uh, I mean, it really, it really depends, right? Like, you know, what, you know, how much time, you know, to, you have to spend in the language. I think that Lina, Lina Hu and Kate Mesh can answer, you know, these questions much better than me, but I would say maybe two years, maybe, um, like, like, for example, Kate Mesh, uh, when she was uh, doing work, like she was, um, maybe it took her six months. We, we, you know, we took some classes and then she lived in the community with a family for, for seven months or something like that. So I think that after seven months, you know, of living in the community mm -hmm. constantly, she made a lot of friends. And I think that after that, she was able to, you know, like, um, you know, gather a group of people that could help her. Um, do uh, you know like um, do elicitations, do field work, but also she she was able to carry on really you know basic conversations with people, but also that you know open people you know up to her. It is not. Um, I think that a lot of most uh, native speakers love it when a person tries to learn the languages because that doesn't happen very much. Yeah, I, I agree that you definitely have to put forth your best effort to learn the language. If there aren't teaching materials, though, um, for you to study before you get there, I think that can make it really difficult. So like you said, if you can, if you can go there for a while just to immerse yourself, yeah, that would be the, the ideal scenario. Um, okay, the next one is, how does a researcher take into account the linguistic needs and goals of a language community when conducting fieldwork? How does the research balance researcher balance their academic goals, e.g. as a PhD student, for example, with the community's goals? Yeah, that, that, that is always, you know, like the, the question that people are, you know, asking themselves. Mm -hmm. So once again, I think that when you go there, you know, just, just be open to listen to what people are saying to uh, just, you know, just hearing what, you know, what people's opinions are, because, you know, people might say different things, right? Yeah. I mean, people have, even myself in my community, you know, there are some people who are not interested in learning Chatino. Well, you know, I'm really, you know, like uh, passionate about it. So, so I, I guess um, it's just getting to know people. Yeah. As a PhD student, like speaking as, as a PhD student, so one thing I tried to do because I, I didn't really have any budget or support to do to like create like really impressive teaching materials or anything like that, um, for the community. But I tried to listen to like on a micro level what people wanted. So when I was in the field, I, 
I babysat people's kids all the time because (laughs) that was like one way I could kind of help to or try to repay the consultants is by like watching their kids or picking up their kids or grandkids from school and taking them, you know, to their activities. And then another thing that I did is I made English menus for different people's businesses because there's a little bit of tourism where I work and, um, and people said like, oh, we would love to have an English menu, but like, nobody speaks English in the community for the most part. Um, so that was like another really small thing I could do just as a PhD student with no budget. So yeah, like it does. I think if you can't do like some amazing thing, you can still do something small. Yes, anything helps. You know, I have a funny story to tell about this. One day, uh, Anthony Woodbury, uh, my advisor, and I were uh, doing field work in my community. So we went to visit the authorities and, you know, a young authority uh, who was also a teacher at the time. This was in 2006. Um, at the time, I guess there were some Chatino uh, communities who were, you know, like uh, tr- uh, translating the, the, the Mexican national anthem to the, you know, um, to, to the Chatino language. So the teacher says, hey, you know what? One thing that I think that we are missing is the national anthem in, in, in our Chatino you know, language in this community. So Tony and I just went back downhill and for two days straight, we, uh, we translated this very archaic national <laughs> anthem and then we tried to dance it and we, we tried to sing it. So we went back to the authorities and we say, hey, we have a translation of the Mexican, you know, national anthem. Can we sing it to you? So we sat, we stood there. We, we tried to sing it. It was just awful. They didn't like it. They said, thank you very much. So they never ask us oh again. Oh, my gosh. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Okay, the next question is, how can a remote researcher who's not collecting data or not collecting their own data, but using somebody else's help the speakers of the language, especially if the language already has a writing system, a couple of grammars, etc. There are so many, so many ways in which you can help um, a language. Like, for example, you know, what are the very concrete ways that a person, you know, who knows technology and is, is to be able to populate some of, uh, some of the areas, like, for example, you know, the, the wiki, you know, the, mm. the wiki ecosystem. Like, for example, I have, you know, uploaded a list of 180, uh, Chatino verbs, right? Well, like, for example, you know, help them, you know, improve their visibility on Wiktionary, on, um, Wikipedia, you know, help them uh, make memes in their languages, help them um, make a a Facebook page uh, for their community. Uh, There are so many ways in which you can help. I think a lot of the languages that have been archived, just speaking from my experience at ELAR as well, like, even if there is a deposit for a language, uh, maybe there is like, uh, Elon file, so a transcription where it's translated, but maybe it's not glossed. So you could reach out to that depositor and say, like, hey, like, I, I'm working on this language and I would love to help you, like, improve or build up these Elon files. And then that, that would just make the deposit better. Yes, definitely. There are so many areas in which you, you can help. Like, for example, I have you know, a corpus of, of the Chatino language is scattered all over the place. So one of the things that I would love to do is to be able to, mm. to make it more consistent 
so so that it can be much more useful to uh, to researchers who want to use it. You know, there are so many ways that you can help. Yeah. Okay, the next one is. Is there a tension between what linguistic departments want or expect out of your work versus what the community actually needs? For us outsiders who communicate with a popular stroke non-linguistic audience, how can we do better at telling other people's stories? Oh, definitely, definitely. Like for example, that I, the main one of the main reasons that I joined linguistics was. Uh, so that that I can, you know, uh, develop uh, a writing system for the Chatino language. And of course, you know, when I came into linguistics, uh, people thought that, oh, no, you know, a writing system, that's a joke. I mean, it's just I can do that in my sleep. But, you know, hey, of course, you know, somebody, you know, in academia can do that in their sleep and they don't want to waste their time. But for communities, this is uh, something really, really important. Uh, communities uh, expect their members to be able to to help, like it's it seems like you know people want to see immediately some results of the work that you are doing. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, like uh, if you're writing in a, a journal article, uh, linguistics departments and in academia, it seems like uh, the people part about um, if you have uh, published in a well-known you know journal and if you are able to communicate with this small group of people, but you know this is not always the case. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so we only have 15 minutes left, so let's switch over to direct messages. Okay, so Joanne asked, at what stage is the development of a writing system for Chitino? So I guess, what's your opinion on where it's at? Oh my God, well, you know, we have, you know, for me, we, we have a, a good, you know, writing system, something that we, we can use now. I, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a writer and I'm a reader of the Chatino language. And right now I'm in the process of creating oh, those are beautiful. Uh, um, materials, you know, for the language, like, for example, children's books. And, you know, as you can see this, uh, they don't have any translation into any major language because the, the target is for Chatino speakers. And Emily Greff is here. I love Emily Greff. She is the one who has helped us, you know, get the publications of this book. And by the way, this is this is where I, I, I might we might need help in the future. Amazon refuses to publish our books because they are not in, a, in one of the languages mm -hmm. that their system recognizes. So I, I know this is a problem, but um, yeah. So so we do have um, a writing system, and uh, we have a group of uh, Chatinos who have taken courses with us, and so we have a, a group of you know readers and writers, and we we write on social media, and it's just so so beautiful. Something that I could not do until up until I was forty years. <laughs> I'm old, as you can see. No, no, no. Uh, Carla asks, what strategies or advice would you give to youth stroke students whose parents and abuelos were Chitinos wanting to learn the language, taking into account migration and colonization? How do you navigate not having access to those elders? Well, this is uh, this is research that is waiting to happen, because as I was saying, you know, there is a sizable Chatino community who um, who now live in southeastern United States, and and there is uh, there is the link between you know the community and the people who live here is broken due to the stream, uh, to to the very strict immigration you know system you know like uh, once you know people a lot of people you know migrate out of their communities because they are seeking you know, a way to, you know, uh, to 
you know, they're seeking for jobs. So, you know, if they're able to make it, you know, to the United yeah. States, they stay here. You know, why go back and then, you know, try to come back yeah. and you risk your life? So, so there is a new generation of Chatino people, uh, of kids who were born when this uh, migration began back in, in the year 2000. Some of these kids who were born around that time right now are in uh, college age. So uh, one of the things that I see just by impression, I have not done any studies of this, is that a lot of Chatinos do, uh, Chatino people do not speak uh, the Chatino language to their kids. They speak a broken Spanish. And many, uh, many of those children are not able, not able to communicate with their grandparents. It's a, it's a very sad situation. And I think that this is more work needs to happen to, uh, to work with these, with these communities to be able to, you know, regain the language. You know, like I think that these books are really useful for, you know, engaging with these communities, but there's, you know, one person cannot do yeah. all. Yeah. So do you think that if someone is a heritage Chitino speaker, then they should seek out to become a researcher of Chitino in order to like reconnect with their language or like what, what advice could we give to help them learn Chitino? Yeah, well, I, I think that, you know, um, we need mm. more support for, you know, people, you know, for native linguists like myself or for people who are creating, you know, um, um, materials for, uh, for indigenous, for learning these indigenous languages. So we need more, you know, to give them more resources so that they can create, you know, like, um, materials so that, you know, other people can, create, you know, uh, programs where these uh, kids can come and learn about the language, about the culture, and about the importance of learning the language so that they can keep connected with the communities and with, uh, with the culture and the, and the knowledge that exists in the yeah, language. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Sonatina asked three questions. So let's do her first question, and then we'll try to circle back. She wrote, how do you feel about Spanish influencing Chitino? Well, you know, um, I, 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 of course, I'm a linguist, and I should, you know, I, I, sh I should welcome, right, have any any language, and it is true. But uh, I'm a person as well, so there are, you know, like uh, there is um, right now, you know, um, a lot of, you know, a lot of shift and a lot of borrowings from Spanish, even from, you know, from words that we have in the Chatino language. Like, for example, when I speak on the phone with my cousins who live in Durham, North Carolina, for example, you know, we keep talking and they say, they say, ah, etnia. etnia is work, right? But then they say, oh, yes, we trabajo. Like, oh, there's, you know, like, uh, so they put a lot of, you know, like, um, there's a lot of barriers into Spanish and really, like, as I, as I said, you know, as a linguist, I should welcome any language, but at the same time, you know, if I'm working to, you know, like, to continue this language, it makes me a little bit sad that we are losing some of the, some of the lexicon. Of course, I need creative ideas of, you know, telling, you know, and I don't want to tell people, but maybe encourage them to use the word. Like, for example, I don't want to be, you know, like uh, the purist and tell my cousin, no, don't, don't, you know, don't use trabajo, use nah, but, you know, I, I really, yeah. you know, like that will kind of break the communication, but you know, maybe a conversation around this issue should happen in a more like public way. And that way, you know, we think about it. And rather than me telling people, you know, at each sentence, you know, what yeah, words to use. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, another question that came in is, how would somebody remote go about finding out a community's position on outside learning of their language and further to go about learning it if no resources exist? Oh. Wow, that is, that is, that is a big question. I don't know. I need some rephrasing in there. I, th- I think you have to try to make a connection with the community, for sure. Like, if you are a remote researcher, that's fine, especially in these COVID, COVID-y times that we're living in. Uh, but I, I think it's really important to try to make some kind of contact with the community to find out what their, what their goals and their agenda is. Oh, yes, yes. I, I think that there are many, you know, like... Um, there are ways to get connected with communities, even, you know, like uh, right now remotely, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a lot of people in many communities are using WhatsApp, people love uh, Facebook and other, you know, yeah, social media. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so back to Sonatina. Um, do you, th- okay, you already answered this. Do you see much mixing between the languages? Um, is there mixing with English among Chitinos in the U.S. and the South? Um. Well, you know what? That is a great question. And actually, I have not done that kind of research. I hear more mixing right now mm-hmm. with Spanish, but maybe, you know, if, with, you know, children who go to school, there might be more mixing in, uh, with English. And that, that will be a wonderful uh, research uh, question to, yeah. to pursue. Yeah, definitely. Okay, Joey wrote, what is your perspective on the debates around the terminology of language death and endangerment? What terminology do you recommend to talk about the pressures on speakers of languages like Chitino to switch to other languages? Yeah, well, you know, um, I've, I'm, I'm so, um, you know, I've been empowered by, um, by li- the literature that, that is, um, that that is out there and that has, you know, come out uh, about, you know, language and then endangerment, language realization. You know, before I came into linguistics, I was not aware of this wonderful literature and, uh, and have, you know, uh, learning about this literature. Really, I was able to put uh, into words, you know, the things that I was seeing in the field. So, um, so I have a lot of respect for the new um, intellectuals who are writing about what kind of terminology we should use, and I respect them. You know, I respect um, Native Americans, you know, who are, you know, bringing their language back. That instead of saying, you know, like uh, language death or that language is moribund, um, maybe say uh, that the, the language is at risk or that the language is dormant. So I, um, I will follow, you know, uh, what what the communities are saying. Like for example, um, I really liked uh, the work of, you know, um, Jenny uh, Davis, you know. And um, in the literature that you, where she writes, you know, like, um, you know, uh, indigenous people have ways uh, in which uh, they talk about their languages. And that was so funny because, you know, like, like for example, she was saying that people, uh, that oftentimes uh, Native Americans talk of their languages as if they were baskets. And it was so funny because when I was doing, I have a little glossary in this book, and then at the end I said, uh, without, you know, seeing, the, you know, what she was writing about. And this is, uh, is um, uh, it's a, a little uh, basket. 
So it's, I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to coin the word in Chitino for, uh, for a dictionary. So I'm going to call it, you know, it's a basket that contains, you know, words. So then it was really funny because I was using the same thing, you know, without knowing that, you know, uh, many other native people also use, you know, uh, envision their languages as something, you know, like a basket containing yeah, words. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, okay, so I think we need to wrap up, but I want to end with uh, Carla asked about where can people buy your books, Hilaria, your Chitino books? Okay, well, actually, there are some of these books that are, that are on sale. Like the first edition that we did at Dartmouth College, you can download them for, for free from Dartmouth, but you can also buy them uh, on Amazon. It's just, you know, they already published a set of books, and now they don't want to publish these other ones. So, Hilaria, can you um, send me the link for that, and then I can put it on uh, the show notes yeah, for this? definitely. And- yes, Oh, fantastic. Oh, Hilaria, this has been so amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Thank you so much for joining this this conversation. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who participated as well. You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui Billens with production help from Laura Satsui. Our music is by Lobo Loco, and our logo is by Eville Designs. If you have a question or fieldwork experience to share, you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ling Field Notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an Apple Podcast review. Thanks for listening.